Hello, all you Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and we are in week number 15. And as we begin this week, we'll start with chapter 8 of 2 Samuel and get into 1 Kings chapter 4, where Solomon takes over leadership from David. Now, as we get right into 2 Samuel 8, we find a listing of David's military exploits, victories over enemies like the Philistines, the Moabites, the Armenianites, and others. And these victories resulted in the payment of tribute to David and also their incorporation into what we might call an Israelite empire. You see, for the first time, Israel's territory extended beyond its allotted borders under the leadership of David. And so God gives David victory wherever he went. This is a reoccurring thought you find in this chapter. And this tends to assure us that no matter what strategy the enemy used, the Lord always prospered his anointed servant. And while each style of fighting called for a different strategy, none of the victories came easily. The Lord always gives David success, though. And David's reign was marked by justice and righteousness, and to ensure that, David put in place a number of trusted public officials. As you move into chapter 9, you see a story of grace. Earlier in the narrative of Saul and David, David had promised Saul that his descendants would not be cut off. And so David learns of a son of Jonathan, Saul's son, who had been crippled as a five-year-old child. You can read 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4 um, about that. This man's name was Mephibosheth, and he lived some distance away in a town named Lodabar. And in accordance with his promise to Saul, David sent for Mephibosheth and promised him a life of security. However, at the same time, David's kindness to Mephibosheth was also an attempt to get on the good side of the Benjamites, because throughout his reign, David had continuing problems with various Benjamites, culminating in a rebellion of sorts in chapter 20 of 2 Samuel. Chapter 10 is about David's growing power and his political success. Upon the death of a loyal friend named Nahash, David sent some ambassadors to his son, Hanun, to show him kindness as his father had done for David. But it seems that David's envoy of messengers was misconstrued as something else. Instead of accepting the messengers, Hanun sends David's ambassadors back to him in a shameful state. Well, this unfortunate misunderstanding leads to war. And Joab leads Israel's army out to battle, and they come back victorious. But the Ammonites don't give up so easily. They come back at Israel for a second time with some additional help from other alliances they formed. But again, Israel prevails, this time with David in direct command. In the end, tens of thousands were killed because Hanun didn't take David's actions for what they were. He took them as suspicious. You know, battles and conflicts throughout the annals of time have begun in this same fashion. But don't miss a subtle point here in the text. David chose to ignore the empty folly of a man who was unworthy of the office he held. Only when Hanun began preparing for war did David take appropriate action. David was content to turn the other cheek, to chalk up the attitude of Hanun, uh, maybe to a grief-stricken son, as a grief-stricken son, but Hanun couldn't let it go. And maybe we need to examine our relationships and see if there is something that we've been holding on to that we need to let go and give it to God. A moment of weakness is what we might term chapter 11. This is the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba. And most commentators are quick to fault David for not being with his men at a time of war like the text says. And that's likely the reason that he fell into sin. However, notice in the, verse, the very first verse in verse 1 that Israel 
had gone into war against the Ammonites, and they had laid siege to a town named Rabbah. And to besiege a city often meant a lengthy, drawn-out war. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for at least 18 months. We find that in the book of Daniel. So, Joab lay siege to the city of Rabbah, and most scholars estimate it was a one- to two-year-long siege. And it seems rather obvious that David cannot be away from the capital city of Jerusalem for a long period of time. He has other duties of state he must attend to. Now, understand this. I'm not dealing lightly with David's sin. I'm simply saying we owe it to ourselves to look at the bigger picture as to why David was in Jerusalem. But do you realize that the story of David's adultery is actually very short? Everything is told to us in just 12 lines of the Hebrew text. But unfortunately, the consequences of David's sin seem to give him grief for the rest of his reign. Now, for Bathsheba to be bathing in a courtyard might sound immodest, but no one could see the courtyard from the street, so her actions were less risque than we might at first assume. If this was a Hollywood script, the bedroom scene would have been a prominent scene, but instead, God passes over the scene with a single statement, He lays with her. Afterwards, days later I assume, Bathsheba sends the message to David that she is with child. And what's interesting is that she doesn't affix any blame, nor does she level any threat, nor does she tell David what to do, but simply informs him, waits for him to take whatever course of action he deems best. While the rest of the chapter is an attempt to cover up the sin. And after Uriah's death, who was Bathsheba's husband, David takes it upon himself to care for Bathsheba, which would be a normal request. At this time, the cover-up seems complete, and as far as appearances are concerned, everything is fine. The guilty pair keep their clandestine activities to themselves. But it's the last verse of chapter 11 that matters the most. This is God's perspective. Listen to what it says. God was displeased with what David had done. After about a year of time, Nathan the prophet is told to confront David about his sin in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. The prophet used a parable to get the point across to David. The parable appealed to David's compassion as a shepherd and drew an emotional response from him. And just like the man in the parable, David deserved to die. But David deserved to die for adultery and murder. Now, hypocritically, David ordered the man in Nathan's story to make restitution, appealing to the Mosaic law, the same law that David himself had so easily disregarded. And isn't it interesting that four of David's sons die? perhaps as a divine fulfillment of the fourfold restitution that David had ordered based upon the story that Nathan had told. Well, Nathan dramatically points to David and says, David, you are the man. David had abused the blessings that God had given him. Notice carefully that the Lord had said he had done five great things for David in chapter 12, verse 8, but David had done four sinful things in spite of God's goodness in verse 9. For David's sins... David's family would be visited with similar judgment. And David asked for forgiveness, but this doesn't annul the consequences as David's illegitimate son dies despite his intercession. Now be careful not to go into the blame game, as some do here, saying that God killed an innocent child. And be careful not to say that God had some purpose in this child's death as though it were something that God had planned. Whatever the child's illness that eventually caused death, both Nathan and David connected it with David's sin. They they raised absolutely no questions about it. Even today, innocent children suffer from what their parents do. But make no mistake, God is not to be blamed. The sins of David are to be blamed for the child's death. And so the birth of David and Bathsheba's second son brings peace rather than death. 
and his name is Solomon. You know, I can't help but see the grace and patience in this narrative. God's patience shows us his love, for he does not want to chasten us, but rather gives us time to act responsibly and repent of that which has separated us from him. God gave David an entire year, 12 full months, but David still refused. Now, chapters 13 and 14 demonstrate the dysfunctional nature of David's family, a consequence from his sins. In the eyes of the people, Ammon is the crown prince and the heir apparent to the throne. Absalom stands second in line to succeed his father, and Solomon at this time is just but a child. The inner family conflict is between Ammon and Absalom, and as you read through chapters 13 and 14, you find that Ammon violated Tamar, and as a result of this, this act, two years later, Absalom kills Ammon. A brother kills a brother. Reminds us of what happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, as Abel, a brother, kills Cain, another brother. Now because of this, Absalom is nervous that his father will take vengeance on him, and so he flees. But David still desires to have a relationship with Absalom regardless of what he has done. And so Joab steps into the scene with a plan to secure Absalom's pardon from his father, But the plan doesn't work as expected. What happens is that David allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but David refuses to have fellowship with Absalom. And this lack of true forgiveness on David's part led to a bitter attitude in Absalom. Notice verse 14 of this chapter 14. It's a very powerful verse. It says, A godly person will plan ways so that the estranged may come back into fellowship. Obviously, David didn't follow that verse correctly. This bitter attitude of Absalom results in his organization of a coup to overthrow his father. You find this in chapters 15 through 18. And as soon as Absalom had been reinstated in the king's favor, he begins to build himself up in the eyes of the people, using every opportunity to capture the hearts of the people. And Absalom does not mince words. He clearly states that he is dissatisfied with the way his father was doing things, and he would clearly be a better leader. Now, for a period of time, the insurrection of Absalom receives a great degree of success, uh, but this was not because of his political skill. It was because of David's laxness in matters of discipline. Well, the coup becomes official, and when David hears word about what's happened, he flees town. It's interesting that David's bodyguard and the 600 men from Gath, who were foreigners, were loyal to David, even when his own son deserted him. On the way out of the city, the priests, Zadok and Abathar, bearing the ark of God, come out to David, but David commands the ark to return to the city, committing the entire situation to the Lord. However, David also enlists the help of these two priests for sources of intelligence on what is happening in the capital while he is exiled. Their sons would relay information to David concerning developments in Jerusalem. Now in chapter 16, the journey out of town continues as David crosses the Mount of Olives. He meets Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, who told him falsely, as it turned out, that Mephibosheth also had gone over to Absalom. His disappointment at this news was exacerbated by his encounter with Shimei, a relative of Saul, who threw stones and heaped verbal abuse at David as the king's party made its painful trek to the east. Well, back in Jerusalem, Absalom rides into the palace and takes his seat on his father's throne. No sooner does he do this than when a loyal friend of David enters the court named Hushai. And Hushai takes great pains to convince Absalom that he is on his side now, pledging allegiance to him. And in a gutsy move, Hushai turns to Ahithophel and asks him what should be done to secure Absalom's transfer of power, as it were. Ahithophel was Absalom's most trusted advisor. 
Now, in the ancient Near East, people regard the public appropriation of a king's concubines as an act that signaled the transfer of power to his successor. And so by following Ahithophel's advice, Absalom brought about one of the judgments God had predicted would come on David for his sin. You can go back and read chapter 12, verses 11 through 12. Absalom's immorality may have taken place on the very roof where David had committed adultery himself years earlier. So we move into chapter 17, Ahithophel is not finished. He realized that the success of Absalom's rebellion depends on the strategy that is adopted to deal with David. He presents a plan to rid uh, David and his men, but read verses 1 through 3 carefully of this chapter of 17, and notice the slip of tongue that Ahithophel makes. He had been referring to Absalom as the king, but now he refers to David as the king. In his heart, I think Ahithophel knows who is rightfully the king. But quickly, Hushai offers a counter-proposal, saying that the king should wait to pursue David until he has a larger army that would ensure victory. Now, viewing this as a better plan, Absalom postponed his pursuit, taking the advice of Hushai over Ahithophel, a plan which God had orchestrated according to verse 14 of chapter 17. It reads, Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, Hushai's advice is better than Ahithophel's, for the Lord had determined to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel, which really was the better plan, so that he could bring disaster on Absalom. This extra time gives David and his men a chance to find a better hiding place east of the Jordan River. David found warm hospitality there, but he continued to be in danger of Absalom and his army as they gave pursuit. In preparation for the inevitable conflict that would happen, chapter 18, David divides his men into three groups. The commander of each group has given stri- been given strict instructions not to do any harm to Absalom. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Absalom, riding through a dense forest area, gets his hair entangled in a low branch of a tree. Joab was directed to the scene where this had happened, and without a second thought, he ran three javelins through Absalom's heart. After some indecision as to how or even to tell David what happened, runners were dispatched with the news that Absalom was dead. In chapter 19, David mourns over his son's death, and he slowly starts to make his trek back to Jerusalem to regain his kingship. Along the way, many of the people who had forsaken David for Absalom come back to David, and he forgives many of them. Now, in chapter 20, we find that not all of the people of Israel come back under David's rule. Some lined up behind Sheba, a discontented Benjamite who sought to split the kingdom. He began to gather supporters, and David ordered Amasa, who had replaced Joab, to march north and put down the rebellion. Along the way, However, Amasa encounters Joab. Joab, likely jealous for his old job as commander of David's army, stabs Amasa to death and takes over his job immediately, continuing to lead the army to defeat the rebellion. Sheba, the leader of the rebellion, had taken refuge in a fortress. But a wise woman of that city, fearing that Joab would destroy the entire city on account of one man, made a deal with Joab. She agreed to toss Sheba's head over the wall if Joab would stop his attack. And true to her word, the deed was done, and Joab returned to Jerusalem triumphantly. Now remember when we referenced earlier in our podcasts that the last part of Judges, Judges 17 through 21, was an appendix to the book. The appendix gave us insight into what it was like living during the days of the Judges. Well, chapters 21 through 24 of 2 Samuel need to be viewed in a similar fashion. These chapters give us insight into the other side of the life of David. 
One author says it best about these chapters. At a deeper level, they present Israel's greatest king as a man who had both inherited problems from his predecessor and created them who fought and achieved his victories with the help of many others who are celebrated here and whose joy and strength was in his God, whom he praised with total abandon because everything he was and everything he had achieved was to be attributed to the faithful Lord God of Israel, end quote. So as we move into chapter 21 of this appendix, we find that famine has come to the land, and it's due to the sins of Saul. At some point in the past, Saul had massacred the Gibeonites, the people that Joshua had made a covenant with centuries earlier in Joshua chapter 9. And so the Lord brings judgment to Israel, while David asked the Gibeonite survivors what vengeance would satisfy them. Nothing but the execution of the seven sons of Saul would do. Mephibosheth, however, was spared, but the other six sons of Saul were impaled. This event reminded David that the remains of Saul and Jonathan were not brought back for the burial in their hometown of Gibeah, and so he arranges for them to be brought back and a proper burial is given to them. This is one thing about taking on leadership from someone who has come before. You have to deal with their dirty laundry, as it were. And David does this by getting things right with the Gibeonites, bringing Israel out of God's discipline on account of Saul's sins. In the second half of chapter 21, verses 15 to 22, is about four giant killers. The text emphasizes the supernatural character of the victories that David was able to enjoy because God fought for him by using various men in his army. And this paracote may describe what happens when David was fighting the Philistines early in his reign. Maybe look back to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. Sometimes David was able to slay enemies personally. Other times he had to rely on the help of others. God blessed David with military victories far beyond anyone's normal expectations because he was God's faithful and anointed servant. Now chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is not only one of the oldest poems in the Old Testament, but also Psalm 18 parallels this chapter almost verbatim. This is the psalm of declaration, a psalm of praise for what God has done for David. It reflects David's rich spiritual life. While David focused attention on the Lord more than on himself, his emphasis was on the blessings that God had bestowed on him. We can divide the passage into four sections, the Lord's exaltation in the first four verses, the Lord's exploits in verses 5 to 20, the Lord's equity in verses 21 to 30, and the Lord's excellence in verses 31 to 51. Now, as you move into chapter 23, the first seven verses we might call David's farewell address. Remembering Jacob in Genesis and Moses in Deuteronomy and Joshua in the book of Judges, these three men gave farewell addresses too. The last words of a person are specifically important, at least this is what the ancient writers believed, and David's last words, one of Israel's greatest leaders, would be extremely important. If you compare these seven verses to the previous chapter of chapter 22, you soon realize that chapter 22 is concerned with the past, God's goodness to David, his protection of him, his blessings of him beyond anything that David could ever imagine. But these few verses in chapter 22 are concerned with the future. David's dynasty and his right to rule is anticipatory of the reign of David's greater son, Jesus. Now, the last part of 23 is concerned with 37 mighty men of David and their famed exploits. One might assume that David's army was made up of the weak, the poor, the discontent, and the outcast, but a reading of the mighty warriors of David's army are going to prove otherwise. 
And the last chapter of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, records another occasion which God withdrew his blessing from Israel. This time it was because of David's sin and not Saul's sin. When David stopped trusting God for protection, he placed his trust in his military numbers. And as a result, God sent a terrible disease that killed 70,000 men. David would repent of his sins and fellowship would be restored, but his sin of trusting in his pride and accomplishments cost the nation of Israel dearly. Now that ends Second Samuel, and that leads us right into First Kings. A few things to look for in the book of Kings. First, the key word or thought is division, for it's in this book that the kingdom will be divided. Second, there's an emphasis on different types of governments that certain kings employed as they reigned. Some types were positive and others were not so positive. And fourth, the school of the prophets starts to emerge as God sends his messengers to deliver reminders to his people. Now, 1 Kings picks up at the end of David's reign and Solomon's accession to the throne. As David neared 70 years old, he had not made a public decree of his success for only a private one to Bathsheba. And in the absence of a clear public statement, David's fourth son, Adonijah, attempted to take the throne for himself. But this event was thwarted by David as he ordered Nathan the prophet and Zadok the high priest to anoint Solomon publicly. As you move into chapter 2 of 1 Kings, David gives the new king, Solomon, his son, some good advice. And Israel's greatest king, David, dies. And as soon as this happens, Solomon puts together a highly organized empire. And you make your way to chapter 3, God appears to Solomon and is preparing to give him whatever he asks. And Solomon asks for a heart of wisdom so that he can judge the people wisely. And because he asks God for wisdom instead of riches, God blesses him with wealth like none other. Solomon's wisdom is displayed right away towards the end of the third chapter in a case between a baby who was claimed by two different women. The highly organized and structured parts to Solomon's kingdom are rolled out for us in chapter 4. Solomon's throne exercised four spheres of political influence. First, there was the homeland. This was the geographical area Joshua had assigned to the 12 tribes. In Solomon's day, Israel occupied only this area. Second, there were adjacent provinces, Damascus, Ammon, Moab, Edom. Solomon taxed these Um, provinces conscripted them for military service. They enjoyed protection and benefits of Israel's central government. Third, there were vassal states, places like Arabia, possibly Philistia, and others that Israel controlled. These enjoyed some autonomy, such as native rulers. However, they provided some tribute and pledged loyalty to Solomon. And fourth, there were allied states, places like Phoenicia and Egypt. These countries enjoyed equality with Egypt. They defended each other as needed, traded with each other as needed, and generally cooperated with one another. Now, we're going to talk more about Solomon and his his empire next week. But for now, that's all the time that we have for this week. So next week, we'll pick up in chapter 5 of 1 Kings. Send any questions you have to Bible reading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.